Hey everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. I'm Carly. And today we have a very special guest with us. Uh, he is the first Democratic Socialist elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in decades. Um, he served for one year beginning in 2019 and was just recently re-elected in November uh, to serve his first full four-year term. It's my pleasure to welcome San Francisco District 5 Supervisor Dean Preston to the show. Supervisor Preston, thanks so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. It's great to be on, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to, to our discussion. We're happy to have you. Very excited to have you. Um, so the first place we want to start, I think, um, because this is what we said when we invited you on our program. <laughs> um, we need to follow through. We have to follow through with our <laughs> promise, um, is talk a little bit about um, the labor movement, specifically in, in San Francisco, but, but also um, a little bit more broadly in terms of uh, at, at a federal level and a national level. Um, of course, right now, one of the big conversations happening is in regards to the PRO Act. Um, there have been some developments and, and even just a political report as of today that some uh, some labor leaders and unions are are flexing their muscle a little bit and and talking about uh, refusing to support a few Democratic senators reelection campaign, specifically Mark Kelly in, in Arizona, should he not commit to supporting and voting on the PRO Act. Um, so, so some movement there, I guess, Dean, uh, it would be nice to hear maybe just a little bit about your experience with and perspective on the PRO Act and, and maybe how people here in, in our city might be able to help support um, the commitment to, to labor rights here and, and nationally. Yeah, well, it, I mean, let's just start with the fact that any Democratic senator or or representative would think it's okay not to support the PRO Act. Like, we're not even talking about legislation that, like, doubles the minimum wage or, like, actually has a substantive impact in that way. This is actually just about the right to organize. And I think it's pretty appalling if you, I mean, you certainly can't call yourself a friend of the labor movement or working people and vote against uh, against something like the PRO Act. So um, it's just hugely important. I mean, we did when I, before I was in office, uh, you know, I was a longtime uh, tenant activist and and did legislation in Sacramento. We, we moved legislation that failed in Sacramento that was very much about uh, the right to organize and, 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 you know, organizing in your workplace, right? I mean, that's the building block for asserting and defending any rights and advancing any rights. And, and you know, the federal government's been pretty terrible over, you know, recent decades when it comes to uh, defending that right and advancing that right to organize. And then we've seen it chipped away, um, you know, at, at the state level in so many, so many places. So this is a really defining moment, I think, nationally for the labor movement. I think the fight uh, in Alabama, the fight uh, at Amazon kind of woke a lot of people up, not just to, to the, the working conditions that a lot of people had, but just to the extent to which um, big corporate entities will under will fight to undermine using any tactic, uh, union busting and trying to prevent workers from from organizing. And we all know what they're afraid of, right? I mean, they're afraid of an empowered workforce going to stand up for their rights. So pretty appalling to, to, to hear anyone at the, the federal level, uh, particularly Democrats uh, not not strongly supporting. Um, you know, we got a different climate in San Francisco. I, I obviously, we've got a, a board of supervisors that is is generally with labor. 
Um, we've got a really, I mean, this is a union town in a lot of ways, um, has been for a long time and, uh, and continues to be. Um, and there are fights, you know, some of the stuff locally that I've been most excited about is the advances, the new places that are unionizing, right? So the, the DSA chapter locally has worked really closely with the ILWU, the longshore mm -hmm. workers uh, and warehousers, and um, been fighting for new workplaces to, to get unionized. We've had a huge victory in uh, the Tartine workers, you know, at Tartine Bakery, organized one and then Tartine fought it, you know, all the way um, to National Labor Board. And, and and recently those results were finalized and there will be a new union there, ILWU Local 6. Uh, the Dandelion Chocolate Workers are organizing right now, just had a vote with a narrow victory, but kind of too close to call because there's a bunch of contested votes. But so it's really, you know, there's all kinds of labor struggles going on all the time. But I think that when you see new workplaces organizing new unions that's kind of the the the, the uh, forefront of the movement in a lot of ways and the steps forward um and so uh, i'm excited to to have been part of some of those and would say when you ask how people can plug in it's like just go to a rally you know i mean honestly just go support these workers who are like putting themselves on the line in their workplace it's like a really hard thing to do organizing there's so many reasons not to so many pressures um, and I know they appreciate it when folks show up in support I've even noticed you know I, I've lived in the Bay Area my whole life and I've noticed particularly in the last year not just the sort of political animus changing but also the rhetoric around unionizing changing we've had you know hammered into us since the 70s and 80s that uh, you know, unions are bad, right? That's been sort of the the political um, the political packaging that we've been given, and a lot of the policies that we've seen at a state and national level have have backed up that same sentiment. And I've noticed a very marked shift. Um, I think COVID changed things drastically in terms of workers really sort of being uh, energized in a way that they hadn't been to to fight for their rights. But beyond that, I think a critical shift that I'm seeing is the media conversation changing. Now, we're still seeing some of the same old, you know, anti-union conversations and, and anti-union headlines. But locally, and I think even in some more mainstream media outlets, I've seen the tenor of the conversation shift, which is really heartening for me beyond the actual organizing. I think the seeing the um, the you know mood around the idea of a union change is one of the things that I'm most excited about too. I, I think that shift is happening. I, I think your perception on that, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, it, it it's, um, you know, I think that there's a, a, a right wing ideology that, that had sort of started as right wing ideology, right? But then became kind of the norm for a lot of the, the more corporate uh, Democrats and, and, you know, for years of just um, really beating down uh, unions, uh, really vilifying, uh, particularly the government sector, 
Um, and, and, and I think, you know, one of the areas that I do think has shifted in the pandemic is, you know, the, the government workers for so long have been sort of the, the, the punching bag for the media and these critiques and, you know, everything from it's so expensive to do this kind of project and the sort of caricatures of like, you know, of, of the workforce and, and some suggestions like they're overpaid, that kind of, and then you come into a pandemic and it's like the, in San Francisco, like the only folks with, except for, except for really wealthy people, the only folks with any protections really from, from not like losing their money, you know, their, their source of income, uh, protected from, you know, still being able to pay their rent, pay their bills, right. Was folks who are, who have a good union and, and, and for a lot of the public sector workers. And so they're not only had some level of stability in their work, not, notwithstanding our mayor threatening layoffs and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, there was more stability and security for those who are in a union, particularly public sector unions. And all of us were so much more dependent on the work that folks in these unions were doing. Right. right. I mean, all the services provided and, you know, it's kind of the untold. One of the untold stories of the pandemic is how all these government city workers after all the criticisms for years of, you know, how many people are on the city payroll and all this sort of right wing anti-union uh, ideology, the reality is like those are the folks who all became disaster service workers, DSWs. Mm -hmm. So people who, you know, like were, were, riding, were operating a bus in the pandemic or, you know, or, or were janitors at a building that was shut down. All right. Those folks were all pivoting into like. Just delivering food to people who didn't have food, right? You know, like they're they're what like kept a lot of people okay um, in this city. So I, I think there's been a shift at a lot of levels, including like just a basic appreciation of how important it is to have folks, um, particularly in public sector unions, but more generally, just folks who have some job stability. Right. And are able to, like, perform all these essential functions. But that said, I mean, we've got a long way to go. Right. And like a lot of folks are operating, you know, fast food workers, others, you know, who worked all the way through the pandemic at ridiculously low wages without hazard pay bumps and uh, without, in some cases, workplace safety you know, and, and at risk for themselves and are, and remain underappreciated. That's why things like ProAct are so important though, right? Cause those, those workplaces should all be unionizing. Um, and if it's not clear now, I don't know it ever, when it ever will be. Jumping off of that and talking a little bit about some of this, you know, this labor sector that, that suddenly has a, a, a newfound level of import and, and uh, urgency behind it. One of the biggest defeats I think in, in November uh, at the state level here was uh, the the victory of Prop 22, um, and a lot of these you know uh, gig economy corporations sort of w winning this this sort of carve out in the law um, that permits them to keep a, a, a distinct sort of underclass of workers um, to deny them sort of the the, the full benefits of, that should be afforded them as as contract workers in in the state. You know, one I think one of the most egregious things about it was this this addendum or, or you know this this thing in the law that says that there's a, a this massive majority necessary to ever overturn it, pretty much almost insurmountable mm -hmm. in in terms of California legislature. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are there. How we you know how we mobilize around that. How we how we work to gain 
rights for this particular sector of of our economy. Besides, obviously, you know, combating this thing from from going to other states or even approaching something at a federal level, which, of course, you know, many in those corporations have have mentioned that is is their end game. It, it almost kind of feels like this is that this is now codified into into law forever. Is there is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that that we can uh, mobilize around in in relation to this particular type of work in our state? Yeah, I don't think it's set in law forever. I mean, it certainly is alarming when these companies can spend the level of money that they spent, you know, to win Prop 22, to lie about Prop 22, um, and 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 effectively redefine what a worker is. I mean, that's what they're really doing. What they what they were pissed off about is that it was pretty clear that the folks they've been treating as contractors and not respecting workplace laws for actually were entitled to those rights. They were workers. And so that's why they, they spent, you know, a, a fortune, right? To, and, and the fact they, you know, you gotta think about the fact they had to spend that much money to win, right? Like if you have a compelling message, you don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to pass a ballot measure. When you're lying to people and trying to convince them of something uh, they don't believe, that's very expensive, right? So, um, so, the, you know, they won that and it's it's really dangerous precedent and they, it, you know, it can be done in other states. And, and there will obviously be litigation regarding, you know, the extent of its applicability. Um, it's going to be an ongoing fight, but it, but it's, you know, it's a huge setback. I don't think we can understate uh, or I don't think we can overstate how big a, how big a, a setback it is uh, for working people and in, you know, not just at like the handful of companies that were high profile, right? But this, the whole gig economy and um, and folks working in that. So it's it's a big setback, but but it's not forever. And and it's like to me, it's it's you know some of these things are it's late stage capitalism and just the complete arrogance, right? And that you know they're not even hiding behind the pretense that that like they're you know, doing things that are good for workers. And it, it's just, you know, they're just using sheer money and political might to, to, to re, you know, basically to redefine the rules. So I, I actually think that kind of overreach, it is devastating for a lot of workers, but it also fuels the very movement that we were talking mm. about, right? It's like, because they're no longer, yeah, they're no longer able to hide behind the idea that these sort of uh, often fictitious notions of of like the kinder, gentler capitalism that get peddled along the way, we're, we're past that now, right? They're just, you know, they'll just spend a couple hundred million dollars on a ballot measure. So I think there there is already a reaction to that. Um, and I think those gains for those companies is going to be short-lived, I hope at least. It's been interesting to see the, the way that San Francisco in particular has responded. You know, we uh, voted against Prop 22 as a city, um, which I think says a lot about, you know, sort of how we feel about about the, that particular measure. And also just, you know, given that so many of these companies uh, that rely on the gig economy and a gig workforce were germinated here in this city or thereabouts, and, and also thinking too about the shifting landscape of, you know, these massive buildings like the Salesforce Tower, sending all of their employees home to work remotely. And then the the staff that maintains the buildings and runs security um, often, uh, you know, lower income jobs and, and uh, 
BIPOC folks working working in these positions, that those workers were um, by and large left behind. And I think recently I saw that that some uh, maintenance staff of the Salesforce building had had gone on strike. My my point in bringing this up is that I've sort of wondered uh, as a citizen here. Um, what I could do uh, more directly to support these workers, both, you know, sort of in the gig economy um, and also these workers that are keeping these buildings for these giant corporations and, and massive, you know, tech companies that have all the perks and, and are doing all the things for their people that work, you know, remotely, but but are more or less out of a job or aren't really as protected as the people that are working remotely. How how can I sort of get behind the those worker populations? Yeah, and, and it's been this has been a huge issue, right? It's like as you say, they're they're the janitors actually recently went out. Their union, uh, local eighty seven, went out on strike with strong support from other labor unions and the entire um, labor council in San Francisco. And huge rally uh, down at one hundred one California in support of them with a lot of elected officials. Um, and they, a lot of folks were not only lost their jobs, you know, like temporarily, but for some, it, they still don't have their jobs back and there's no guarantees uh, folks are going to get offered those positions. So it's really been devastating, even worse for folks who are not in, in unions, but even for folks in unions, it's been it's been a really, really challenging time. I, you know, I think... There's a lot of ways folks can plug in and, and help out. Um, I think, you know, I just read an article recently that was about about transit workers and it ended with um, the head of the, the TWU uh, 250A, who made the point of, uh, you know, thank your bus operator, right? Like there is something as simple as like, <laughs> you know, just some, I think people feel particularly in this time when so many of the normal interactions aren't there because you're, you know, working, you're, you're cleaning an office building that's half empty or what, right? There's just less of the human interaction. So I would say, you know, this is not some radical concept, but I, I do think it's just at some level, the expression of appreciation of folks who are doing all this hard, like really hard work and who really have been at risk and themselves and their families. And, you know, often the last folks to get like good PPE, to get the masks. I mean, you, you think about, we had to, we had to fight to get like hand sanitizer to yep. frontline mm -hmm. workers, right. Especially early in the, in the pandemic. So, so just, you know, expressing the appreciation to folks when you can, um, joining any and all rallies. Like I can't think of labor rallies that I won't show up at, right? It's just whatever the issue is, you don't have to be an expert on it to know that you want to stand, you know, in support of folks. Um, and, and then the other is to plug in with an organization, right? I mean, I'm a, obviously a DSA member. The labor committee of DSA is amazing and is and is themselves plugged in really with all the different ways to, to support different uh, uh, battles for workers' rights that are going on locally and, and at the state level. Um, so whether through DSA or through, through another organization, I think just plugging in with a group that is uh, really focused on supporting workers and unions um, is, is really the, probably the best way for non-union members or folks outside of that uh, particular sector to help. 
You know, one of the things that we talk about on our show a lot and, you know, I think is also part of a socialist perspective, I'll, I'll shy away from the word agenda for fear of it, you know, us feeding into to stereotypes here, but but the idea of this really holistic sort of left political project, you know, that, that we can't talk about one thing and change one thing without moving pieces in, in other aspects of our communities um, and, and really approach the thing from a big picture and understand that sort of intersectionality of all of these different issues. So I, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the other projects that you're working on at the moment, things that you've campaigned on, and, and maybe talk about their relationship to the labor movement, to you know, the, the, the working class of San Francisco. I'm thinking specifically, first and foremost, about, um, about uh, the public bank project. And, and maybe you can um, offer a little bit of context and, and tell us a little bit of, about how that um, is going to benefit the working class uh, community here in San Francisco. Definitely. So, you know, first, I guess we should just recognize that a big question in San Francisco, given the really high costs in this town, are who gets to live here and who doesn't, right? And so when we're talking about working people, the most immediate question is, you know, what kind of compensation are they getting? What's their what's their income? And then can they afford housing? And we all know in San Francisco, unless you know, their family's own property for 50 years or something, um, they are most likely only able to afford San Francisco because of some program, whether rent control, uh, below market rent program, public housing, Section 8, what it, right? That's like the working class of San Francisco, uh, again, with a few exceptions of working class families who've, who've lived here a long time and owned before this was uh, so prohibitively expensive. Um, but, you know, most folks are relying on those uh, protections, right, that we, I think, as a, as a left movement have won in San Francisco and things that were considered super radical at the time, right? So like in 1979, if you were talking about rent control, it's like you are this radical lefty, you know, it, well, now you pull rent control in San Francisco and people overwhelmingly support it, right? Because there would be like, barely a fraction of the working class in San Francisco if we didn't have rent control here, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the fights are, are around that, are around protecting folks' right uh, to stay here. And, mm -hmm. and, and that, means, that means sufficient income uh, it, and it means, it means affordable housing, but it also means looking at all the other aspects of folks' lives, right? So when they need, uh, you know, you mentioned a public bank, right? And we're, we're uh, working with the Public Bank Coalition to try to establish the first municipal public bank in the nation here in San Francisco. Um, you know, that is connected to all these other issues. Where are you going to get a loan when you're low income and you want to go buy property or you want assistance writing down your massive medical debt Right. Or you're trying to you're, you know, um, you're someone who wants to start a small business. Right. Where are you going to get that loan? And are we going to continue just relying on, you know, Wells Fargo and these multi-billion dollar uh, companies who we know that they're only in business to make money? Right. Or are we going to actually create something controlled by people for the benefit of people and use our many billions of dollars in San Francisco uh, to fund a public bank? which would be a resource uh, for the community. So we, there was the Public Bank Coalition worked statewide to change state law to allow public banks. So that's happened now. And so now we are doing legislation to actually come up with the business plan 
to move forward and get licensed uh, the first the first public bank. Uh, there, there, well, there's the first municipal one. There's the state of North Dakota has one, but no city has one. So that's mm-hmm. so that's a you know huge effort. And then we got to look at other costs and expenses, you know, other expenses people have and access to those things, right? And especially during a pandemic, like this has come up, right? It's like, what do people need, right? Um, you know, uh, food security issues, transportation. Uh, we're doing a big free muni pilot that we just announced uh, that we're moving through the Board of Supervisors. And, you know, I mean, that's, the, it, it's, it's so interesting. You talk about free muni, uh, people who are pretty well off say, oh, I don't really care about paying for muni. You know, I'd rather if it were better in this way or that way. I don't care about. Well, I understand that if you're earning a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe it's no big deal for you and your kid you're taking to school or whatever to hop on muni, spend five bucks going one way, spend five bucks going you know, back and, what, and that that's no big deal. If you're working at McDonald's, you're basically taking an hour of your labor and yep. putting it in a fare box just to ride on public transportation, which is something that we should be like celebrating people who ride on public transportation because they're not getting in a car, <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, they're actually like supporting, they're, they are the and public transit riders and use of public transit are, are like the one of the biggest answers to climate change. In urban America and in major urban areas, transportation is the biggest polluter, right? And so, we, we should be getting as many people as possible on public transportation, investing in that, and also making it so that working people aren't shelling out their limited money for these basic things that should be rights, not privileges. So I do think they're all connected. I mean, if you, if you don't have a union and you're not getting a good salary, you're not going to be able to afford the things in your life. If you Even if you do have a good income, if you're paying it all out, if you're paying 70% of your income to your rent, you're not going to be able to stay in San Francisco. And by the same token, if you have affordable rent, a decent income, but you're paying for medical care, transportation, all these things, uh, you know, education, things that should be rights. If you have to go out into the private private market or spend a lot of money on them, uh, then you don't have enough left uh, to live. So, th- so these things are are very much all connected. And we try in my office to be pushing the envelope on all these things. Obviously. Uh, you know, not all of it happens overnight, but I think we're making some progress. The free muni pilot is really exciting, Dean. And I think the, you know, the com- the local conversations I've seen around it, and you've been in the trenches having having the discourse with everyone and and dispelling some of the misconceptions, because the thing that I've I've been seeing is that outside of that sort of privileged POV of like, I don't really care, you know, how much it costs. There's also this, this idea that we're somehow not supporting MTA workers or, you know, that workforce if we're providing free transportation, which is totally not the case, right? It's about, it's about using funds so that those workers can get a decent wage and continue to, to be part of that essential workforce, but that we also are making it free and available to our citizens. And that's been the biggest sort of like disconnect I've seen where people can't sort of imagine that a government functions in this way to socialize something as basic as transportation. Mm-hmm. Right. E- even though, you know, those same folks believe, I, I would assume, in in public education, right? right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and yet, like at the end of the day, someone does have to pay for these things, right? And there's a model that, you know, 
that puts that burden on getting it from folks that have the money and being bold and unapologetic about an agenda that says we're going to fund, you know, whether it's public education, public transportation, um, you know, a, a, a single payer healthcare system, right? We're going to fund that through aggressively taxing, taxing wealth and, and, and corporations and so forth. And, and, you know, and that's a viable option. And we're, we're sort of, um, told year after year, generation after generation, that that's unrealistic. And instead, what's realistic, you know, like Muni can't function, <laughs> supposedly, if we don't get $200 million a year in normal times from fares from riders. Like, that's just a decision that someone is making. We, right. we haven't asked corporate interests that are profiting you know, off this city and off the people of this city to mm -hmm. pay for that. We, in fact, we have things like the transit impact development fee that aren't even close to what we're legally allowed to charge. So that's a fee on developers to pay toward transit, right? There are other streams of revenue um, that you, that you can go after. And, and so part of it is, is like trying to abandon some of those assumptions and, and, and the, the, Unfortunately, the, the, the small government and neoliberal project is to convince you that everything is a trade-off. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you don't charge, like they tried this when they increased MTA fares, muni fares last year. They tried to increase them in the middle of a pandemic. They said, well, if we don't increase them, we're going to have to cut service. It's like, which one do you want? You know? And it's just, it's not, it's, it is not that zero sum game is a choice, right? Like saying, here's our pie of money and pitting everyone against each other for that pie of money. It is, it, it is not productive. Right. And I think for us, you know, certainly for socialists, for, for, for progressives more generally, it's, um, it's kind of blowing, like increasing that pie and just saying like, we, as a society, we, we tax corporate entities and wealth at a, at a tiny fraction of what we used to tax them for, even when we used to undertax them, right? Like now we way undertax them. Like billionaires like die with estates and tens of millions of their dollars isn't even taxed, right? Mm -hmm. When yeah. we have decreased the tax rates and like, like all this stuff could fund things like free pub, public transit. Some of them we can't do locally, right? And some of them we can. Some things are state law, some things are federal, but there's a lot of stuff we can do. And, and that's what we did with Prop I last mm -hmm. year for housing. You know, we doubled the transfer tax on properties that were $10 million or more. Again, told that that was like too radical, we should only change it by like this tiny fraction of a percent. We said, it's ridiculous. Like people selling $10 million properties can pay more tax. Like Crimea River, they're, they, they're going to pay a lot of money, <laughs> right? It, it's just, right? So, so, but we're up against that a lot. And, and if you don't, if you're not aggressive about getting more revenue, then you're always going to be stuck in this thing of doling out the benefits. Like, oh, we can't have free muni. We can just give free muni to these few people over here who are the most needy, mm -hmm. right? A right to counsel for tenants facing eviction. Great idea, Supervisor Preston, but, you know, we can't really afford that. Let's just have the people who are like, who are in under $10,000 a year, we'll give them a free, right? And that's kind of what we're always up against. And what, what, when you look at like the things I've 
worked to bring to the ballot, to the board. It's to, to really try to not accept those kind of limitations. And if that means we have to go get more money from very wealthy people, let's go get it. And that's why I'm not very popular with the billionaire crowd. They did, <laughs> did not want to see me in office. And they were right. I think if you're popular with the billionaire crowd, you're doing it wrong, for Absolutely. the record. <laughs> yes. And, you know, not a, a, a new conversation by any means, but I, I think that uh, one of the things that we talk about so frequently is that this neoliberal project, one of the things that it does that's so potent is completely winnows down um, the aperture of, of what's possible. And, and you know, the, the idea of, of imagining something different and, you know, you're... Your campaign was one that certainly was inspiring to us uh, in this last election. Um, I came to support you through doing some work with the Jackie Fielder campaign as well, um, which was a, a defeating loss, but a really, really phenomenal, inspiring campaign. And she's still doing great stuff. Listen to her podcast. I think you were on the podcast, in fact, Dave. I was. You were on the <laughs> podcast talking about the bank. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Dean, with our, with our last couple of minutes here, because I know we're pretty much at time, is there anything um, at, at the local level coming up in the very near future here that uh, you want to give visibility to anywhere where, where people can get involved or, or uh, dedicate some of their time and energy? Well, I would say one of our big issues, it is budget season. Right. So the mayor proposes a budget and it comes over to the Board of Supervisors. And uh, we have this thing at the Board of Supervisors that you've probably seen called question time, where we get to ask a, the mayor a question. And uh, most supervisors over the years haven't bothered to use it because uh, <laughs> it's not you don't always get them the clearest responses. Let's just put it that way. Um, but I decided to use my time in question time to uh, ask the mayor to confirm that she would spend the prop I revenue which is going to be, you know, many millions. We've already swept $20 million into rent relief and, and affordable social housing. And the projections from the controller are the prop I revenue for next year could be, and it'll be north of 60 million. We don't have the exact figure yet, but it, it's just, you know, this is going to be annually when the economy rebounds, you know, over a hundred million dollars in some years, closer to $200 million going into affordable social housing. So, we asked her something very simple. I, I, I asked her, will you commit that all the Prop I revenue will be in your budget allocated as the voters intended it and as the Board of Supervisors intended it, half of it going to COVID-related rent relief and half of it going uh, to the creation of social housing? And the mayor would not commit to that. So um, if you're asking me what the big one of our big issues right now going into budget season is going to be for everyone to reach out to the mayor's office, to the mayor and insist that Prop I revenue be spent as intended on rent relief and affordable housing. We are introducing a resolution at the Democratic uh, County, County uh, Central Committee on that. Uh, we are asking all the folks who came out in support of Prop I, all the folks who volunteered on that, who did the hard work. We were outspent 20 to one on the Prop I campaign by the by the billionaires who didn't want to pay their share of taxes when selling you know mega mansions and, and huge buildings we were outspent 20 to 1 and still won 58 percent of the vote right so a decisive victory um but the fact the mayor refuses to commit to spend the money uh you know and put it in her budget is a problem um and i think folks really need to speak out about that so uh there are a lot of different uh, priorities and things going on, but I would say that is one for our office that is is going to set the tone not just for this year, 
right? But for future years of what is going to happen to this 100 to $200 million annually that we all fought for and voted for um, and making sure that no uh, political leader, whether the mayor or anyone else, uh, get, stands in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Great 100%. answer. Um, briefly here, Dane, because our podcast is uh, an entertainment podcast first and foremost, what would you say is your favorite movie of the 1990s? Oh, my God. <laughs> 90s? Big question. No. What's that? What, because so many movies. I'm trying to think what's in the what's in the 90s. Oh, you know what I just watched? Was this 90s? I just watched The History of Future Folk. Have you seen that movie? No. No. I think it was 90s. It's okay. kind of classic. I just watched it with my kids. I wouldn't say favorite movie, but it's definitely, <laughs> uh, I just rewatched it. I think it was 90s. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that for now. Awesome. It, it, it's a blast. Tune in next month when Dean's on the show talking about history of future folk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I see but, what you did there. Yeah, right. We have to pull. We have to try. Um, well, awesome. It's been a great conversation. Um, Supervisor Dean Preston, thank you so very much for your time. Congratulations on your reelection. And um, we look forward to lots of great things over, over the course of your many, many years serving the city of San Francisco. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you. As always, uh, we have been Hit Factory. Follow us at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe, patreon.com slash Hit Factory Pod. Follow we... Dean Preston on Twitter. <laughs> follow Dean Preston on Twitter <laughs> for updates. Um, and uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>